Welcome to The Conversation. I'm Brooke Thomas filling in for Jenk today. And as always, very glad to be here. So thanks for having me. We have an in-studio guest first off. So I'm gonna introduce you, get him right here. We have Dr. Liam O'Mara. Thank you so much for being here. Yes, thanks for being here with us. And you're a congressional candidate. I am indeed. But you're also a college professor with a PhD in history. Yes, I am. I'm a historian of the Middle East and Europe. I love that. So tell me, what brought you into politics? Well, um, I guess we think we need more historians in politics in general. I think we can give some they're, kind they're of thing. They're getting it wrong. Yeah, people get it <laughs> wrong a lot. Yeah. And uh, and this is a problem I see actually on both sides oftentimes in a discussion here is there's no real sense of perspective. There's no real understanding of how policy has worked out over time as well as in other countries. And if we actually can look back at what works and you know craft new policies based on the evidence, I think we'd get farther. And so you're running in, excuse me, California's 42nd congressional district, right? And so you're running to unseat Representative Ken Calvert? Correct. Why should Congressman Calvert be unseated? Okay, um, well, first off, you can point to the, the issues of xenophobia. He's definitely played with a lot of um, uh, racially charged imagery, fostered, uh, pushed a lot of um, anti-immigrant rhetoric. He, at one point, encouraged supporters to go out and rock buses full of migrant children seeking asylum, mm-hmm. which is just a terror tactic. But I think the things that stand out more to me, really, are him showing up frequently on lists of the most corrupt people in Congress. He's willing, basically, to take whatever money people give them and vote along those lines. and. He's also missing in action as far as the actual constituents are concerned. He does not hold town halls. He does not answer questions most of the time. You can't get him to do much of anything. And his office has literally stated that if someone did not vote for him, he's not interested in talking to them. And on this, stay on this topic of Congress, the current Congress, a lot of voters seem to be unhappy. A lot of voters are happy, a lot of voters are fine, but a lot of voters are unhappy. They felt like there was gonna be some sort of, like a stronger sense of change mm-hmm. after the last election. Where do you stand with that? And then I also wanna touch on where you stand on impeachment. One of the key issues for Congress in general, and Congress does tend to have pretty low approval ratings, uh-huh. but it's difficult to get people actually to talk to one another and get anything done, which tends to make it look like a dysfunctional body in the first place. One of the key issues here, and I think a lot of that enthusiasm that we saw for some of the candidates that came in there, we just need a lot more of them. We need a lot more people coming in on clean money pledges, willing to do the work of the people and advance policies that affect ordinary Americans as opposed to whatever donors put somebody in office in the first place. The more we can step up and push those kind of candidates, the better Congress is gonna be able to function. Where do you stand on impeachment? If you were a sitting member of Congress right now? Well, I'm hoping it isn't actually an issue by the time we get in there. but. I think it's it's a tricky question. Uh-huh. Um, I'm really of two minds of it. On the okay. one hand, there are serious ethical reasons to pursue it. I think that there should be some kind of accountability and deterrence for what the report does actually indicate are actually actionable crimes under the Constitution. The problem here is that we have a hyperpartisan climate that is actually going to be negatively impacted by impeachment proceedings. On the one hand, we did see in the Nixon era when they pursued impeachment there, it revealed a lot of information and actually started to change some of the discussion, but not for most people in Congress. It was only a handful of Republicans and most of the Republican base actually stayed loyal to Nixon all the way to the end. And we are much more partisan now than we were then. So uh, I don't see any realistic chance of, of a conviction and I think that could actually, it could throw the 2020 election to the Republicans. And so, and I think that, I, I'm glad that, that you are honest about this answer because I wanna push back on that a little bit. I just have a question. So mm-hmm. is it 
Is it, there's you know, two spaces to go here. Is it just simply point blank the responsibility of Congress if a crime has been committed? Mm-hmm. Or do should they be able to weigh their options because of Politics. Yeah, that's why that's why it's a tough question, and why I am with two minds of it uh-huh. because they do have some kind of responsibility to hold them to accountable. The simple fact is the Constitution doesn't give us a good way to hold the president accountable because the Senate is not likely even to take up the question, much less to convict. And the proceedings could actually polarize things even more, uh, animate the Republican base. And uh, polls have already shown that independents just don't care. And to win elections, Democrats and Republicans both, they both need independent voters every single time. And if we waste the time talking about impeachment and focusing on impeachment, we're taking away time that we could be talking about actual issues that affect ordinary people. All right, so, well, I mean, I, I get the, the question about doing the job, mm-hmm. but I think it also, it is the job of Congress to advance policies that will affect ordinary people and help people's lives. And it takes away the time we could do that. It throws the messaging cycles all the time to the media. It takes away from that. Well, you mentioned voters. So how do you plan to win over voters in a district that uh, traditionally votes Republican? It has, although that's been changing a bit demographically. There's been tons of people moving into the area. The district is now 30% Hispanic. There's tons of bedroom communities. It has been shifting. The number of Democrats has stayed pretty steady, but the number of Republicans has steadily fallen for more than a decade. There's a lot more independent voters out there. So the, the key for me is trying to take what are actually progressive policies and message them in a way that makes sense to independents and moderate conservatives, which means I have to speak their language. I have to approach an issue not in a way that might make sense just to like liberal voters, but in a way that could make sense to independents. Well, let's break down their language. You know, what are issues that you think matter the most to the voters in your district? And how does that line up with the issues that matter most to you? Well, it, it depends on how you want to approach the question there. I mean, there are issues that do matter a lot to the district. The immigration issue frequently comes up as a big polarizing one. People point to simple issues like traffic, which ultimately to me points to the lack of actual jobs and opportunities in the area. I mean. The district has about a million people. It's quite large geographically. There's not a single university in it. And only one community college and one satellite campus for a community college. And there's not a lot of industry out there either, which means most people are commuting to work. So the the quality of life has actually been declining. Many people moved out there in the first place because it was too expensive to live in LA or Orange County. And we're just end up moving out there and then have you're stuck commuting back into those areas because there's fewer opportunities as well. And I think these really stand out as big issues for a lot of people there that have to be tackled. Let's talk some other issues. Where do you stand on Medicare for all? I personally am in favor of Medicare for all as a solution. Um, The trick is going to be winning the argument. And especially in um, a purple district or a red leaning district, that means changing some of the ways that we discuss it. People do in polls suggest that they are pretty well attached oftentimes to their insurance. I like my insurance, I don't wanna give up my insurance. So the trick there is to get them to understand they're not really giving up their insurance. Right, or I mean, what they think they're giving up. Right. They're attached really to their providers, yeah. know, to, the, to the care that they get. The insurance is just the, the middleman in between. It's just the bean counters. They want to be able to go to their doctor still. Right, Let's exactly. Say, yeah. mm-hmm. And with a Medicare system, you would still be able to do that. I think one of the problems is, and this goes back to the way um, Obama messaged the ACA, was that, well, you'll be able to keep your doctor. And you can't promise that when it's a, a corporate-centered plan. Businesses were going to make decisions, and some people did lose access to their, their providers. So people are a bit wary about that. So we have to actually explain better what it really means. And I think one of the key issues for me, especially in a more conservative district, is to hit the self-interest. The simple fact is Medicare is a lot, a lot cheaper 
right? Uh, we will save tons of money on it. People often say, well, how will we pay this? How, how will we pay for it? We're already paying for it. We're paying more than twice what we would need to pay to get better care. It's simply being wasted. So if you can tell people that this policy will put 10 grand back in your pocket, that's your money, it's part of your compensation package from your employer, that's your money. If you tell a conservative person that they will get to keep more of their money, you're kind of winning the argument. Right. Uh, what about criminal justice reform? Do you have any plans uh, for criminal justice reform? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's they're, a big they're, umbrella they're, topic. I know. Yeah, it's it a is. It's, right. it's, a, it's a huge we issue. We don't have all day. I understand. <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, it's a huge issue. Um, and we've made too little progress on that. I think we took way too many wrong turns. There's way too people who ran on this whole tough on crime sort of ideas. The more you criminalize things, the more you create criminals, right? And we've locked up tons of people for completely nonviolent offenses, nonviolent drug users, for example. I mean, I think we need to discuss things like amnesty for nonviolent drug offenders in order to deal with the, the problem of, of prisons. I mean, California has built far more prisons than it has built colleges. I mean, we're basically creating pipelines funneling people into prisons. And once they're in, because our prison systems can be fairly brutal, it's very hard to get back out and establish a life. Right? So it keeps the crime rates overall higher than they should be. All right, um, let's see. Let's talk about the student loan debt crisis. Mm. Do you have plans for the student loan debt crisis? Because I think I people, a lot of people have plans. There are multiple different plans, mm -hmm. lots of criticism. The ones that I see criticized the least, actually, no, they're all criticized. Even if you say everyone yeah. goes to college for free, mm -hmm. people who paid for college are like some people, well, that's not fair. And then um, you saw what happened when uh, uh, Senator Harris the other day mm -hmm. kind of released a plan that wasn't even necessarily a student loan debt plan, it was a plan for to increase black Americans involvement with STEM jobs mm -hmm. and it, it that that was a bad rollout. It very quickly became a meme, yes. Very quickly. So uh, what are your plans for um, student loan debt? Well, I think again, the the question is is a one of messaging. I mean, on the one hand, we've bailed out tons of industries already, right? We keep bailing out the auto industries, the banking industries here. Why not bail out a significant part of the middle class? Mm -hmm. But then people might say, well, why should we pay for some middle class kids who got to go to college. I didn't go to college, I'm making my own living here, I'm making my own way. And you can kind of understand why they would make the, this kind of arguments. There's a good ethical objection there. So you have to, we have to turn that around a bit and say, well, think about this. The people who are drowning under the student loan debt, they're often unable to buy cars, mm -hmm. they can't buy houses, they can't get married and have kids. It keeps them from buying tons of product. It makes their cost of living much higher than it should be. If you remove the student loan debt, it's actually a stimulus to the entire economy because suddenly they're going to be able to buy houses, which means there's jobs and you know and, and, and the building trades that help out there. They're going to be able to buy cars, so right. more cars will sell. It actually helps everybody, not just the college students. And I think if we make that clearer, if we make it clear that it, it helps the entire economy, including the people who didn't go to college, it'll make a lot more sense. Well, Dr. Liam O'Meara, thank you so much for being with us here today. I wish we had more time. This no, was great. My pleasure. Tell us where uh, viewers and voters can find you. Well, they can find me on uh, liamomera.org. Um, we have a website up there. There's uh, you know, places where you can hop in, volunteer, donate, and get more information. We're also very active on social media. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that business. I'm pretty easy to find. Awesome. Thanks so much. It was great Thanks talking so. to you. Thank you. All right. That is just the first part of the conversation. We will be right back with much more. Stay with us. Hey there, welcome back to The Conversation. I'm Brooke Thomas filling in tonight. Thank you for watching. All right, next up we have a guest, Nathan Carpenter, the state coordinator for the Rhode Island Progressive Democrats of America. Nathan, good evening and thank you for joining us. Good evening, thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor. 
Absolutely. All right, so uh, just let's start right off. You know, can you explain for our viewers uh, who the Rhode Island Progressive Democrats of America are? Uh, so we're um, a very uh, small group in a small state. Uh, we fought for a lot of issues for a long time, but recently we decided to um, bring climate change to our primary issue. Um, you know, there's essentially no time to act on, uh, no time to waste uh, on acting on climate change. Um, so we decided to bring this to our, our top issue, like I said, and. Um, you know, really what we want to do is create 200% renewable energy here within the state of Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. uh, we are a small state, but we're really in the perfect location and are the perfect size to um, to go through with this plan. We uh, want to basically build municipal utilities uh, and use the profits from the project in order to pay for it and also give dividend checks back to the citizens of Rhode Island. So tell us exactly, uh, just like more break down that plan and how you plan to implement it. So we're gonna start off with Cranston uh, and then we're gonna make our way to uh, the entire state. Uh, basically what we did is we um, came uh, together not too long ago. We were looking at issues that we were working on uh, recently. Connecticut and Massachusetts um, passed a $15 minimum wage and we were thinking about uh, you know, implementing something like that in Rhode Island, and that you know would be an easy path to do because the surrounding states did that. Uh, and then we started to think about what uh, a $15 minimum wage would look like on a climate ravaged planet. And to be perfectly honest, it meant absolutely nothing. Uh, and I wanna be perfectly honest that I'm here uh, not to scare anyone. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of the uh, ideas and facts about climate change can often produce a knee jerk reaction uh, that you know makes people wanna run and hide. Uh, but this is not uh, you know a time for me to scare people. This is a time for us to kind of all come together on a common problem uh, and have a solution to preserve uh, Earth. So we're gonna start off in Cranston uh, and we uh, decided to pair up with Ocean State Community Energy. Uh, they're gonna come down and site the town uh, for wind, solar and tidal energy uh, and basically tell us exactly how this is going to work. How many uh, solar panels we could put up in the city of Cranston, uh, where the wind turbines could go, uh, what, how much, uh, 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 tidal power that we could generate from this, where it would be stored, how it would be sent out through the rest of the uh, state, and you know what it would cost. Um, and so from there, we'd go to a larger scale plan throughout the rest of the state. Uh, there have been environmentalists that have come in that have actually said Rhode Island could be to renewable energy, what uh, Saudi Arabia is to oil. So it's really a prime location. Uh, we're only 48 miles long, but believe it or not, we have about 400 miles of coastline. So uh, from a opportunity standpoint of putting up these onshore wind turbines, uh, you know, we're really in a prime location. We also only have a million people. Uh, so from a basic uh, supply and demand standpoint, we are at an incredible advantage there. Uh, on top of that, we're also uh, the second most densely settled state. So. Uh, you know, we have real prime real estate to uh, take the hundreds of thousands of homes that are here in Rhode Island and lay solar panels uh, on top of the roofs. Uh, so, you know, from there, uh, our real plan is to basically, um, you know, step in front of the fossil fuel industries. Uh, these are uh, 
a bunch of different uh, industries that have really put us on an absolute path to destruction. And it's time to take that power away from them. Uh, every year, Rhode Island imports $3 billion worth of energy. Uh-huh. And if we cut that off, uh, you know, it's going to put other states on notice. And I think people in Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Vermont, uh, they're all going to start asking the question, you know, why can't we go to renewable energy as well? Um, Rhode Island uh, was the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. And my question is, why can't it be the birthplace of the energy revolution as well? You know, I want to know, because you, you all have said you have a goal of creating 200% renewable energy. Can you break down exactly what that means and what it looks like? Sure. So uh, this is what uh, the Ocean State Community Energy uh, Group, uh, they're, they're, they're a group of experts that are out of Boston that are going to come down and, and cite first Cranston and then the rest of the state. So um, like I said, you know, Rhode Island is a very unique uh, territory because of the fact that, uh, you know, we're located on the ocean. We have all of this uh, ability to create a massive amount of energy from the wind. Uh, et cetera. But uh, we don't know for a fact that we can create 200% renewable energy. We're kind of going off what uh, some of the environmentalists have told us. So um, if we can create 100% and keep all of that uh, profit, you know, sent through um, municipal utilities, then, um, you know, we have a start. But 200% would mean that we could export it into surrounding states and towns uh, and really, um, you know, profiteer off of, um, you know, this energy that we're producing from wind, solar and tidal. So um, can you explain the energy profit dividends that people in Rhode Island would receive uh, through this plan? Sure. So um, I think anytime that you ask someone to change, uh, it can be a a very difficult thing for someone to do. Uh, You know, even the slightest bit of change um, uh, from a, you know, basic human nature um, standpoint is, uh, going to uh, create, going to have some resistance. People don't like change. Mm-hmm. So, with dividend checks back, uh, people are incentivized to make this switch, and we're making uh, the idea of switching to renewable energy an attractive one. Uh, and you know, after we come up with the state plan and market it uh, to the scale that we want, uh, we're hoping to sell this to every individual in Rhode Island, and uh, you know, hope that people really want this. They will want this. You know, um, think about changing something very small in your life. And if someone offered you money to do it, then, uh, you know, I don't know how much more likely they are to actually go through with that action, but I can promise you it's an astronomical amount. So, and we kind of touched on this a little bit, but I wanna know just more in detail, you know, why do you think Rhode Island is a good candidate to become the first renewable energy state? This would be a big example for other states. And you mentioned surrounding states and um, how this could kick off with them as well. Yeah, so like I said, we we really have um, you know prime realty for this. We're we're a small state. Uh, we're surrounded by uh, Boston. You know, New York is about three hours away. Uh, they supply us with about forty two percent of our energy right now. Uh, we're really reliant on surrounding states for all of our energy. Uh, we have a few peak. Um, energy facilities, but none of them are really working any time other than July and um, January when you know you need the most amount of energy to be sent through the state. So, um, you know, like I said, with having 400 miles of coastline being the second most densely settled state and only having a million people, I think we're at an extreme advantage to um, be the first state that is uh, run exclusively on renewable energy. Nathan, uh, tell me a little bit about your role as the state coordinator of uh, the Rhode Island Progressive Democrats. You know, what, 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 is, what is your role? 
so I, you know, oversee a lot of the projects um, in a lot of ways. We're really a well-run independent machine. We have people that are kind of all over the state doing their own thing. Uh, we've fought for a lot of issues. Again, uh, you know, reproductive justice, pay equity, um, $15 minimum wage. But you know, again. Uh, all of those issues, um, you know, would be nothing on a climate-ravaged planet. Uh, if you ever want to be scared uh, and you want to skip a movie, uh, but still, you know, want to, to be frightened, uh, look at what climate scientists are saying that the world is going to look like in 30 to 40 years if we mm -hmm. don't take away, uh, you know, the power from the fossil fuel industries and curb emissions by 45% uh, by 2030. Um, and you know, some people might think of this as being extreme, uh, you know, take away that power, but uh, they've really led us down a path of destruction. And the analogy that I give to people is, imagine you're barreling down the highway doing 65 miles an hour, and you're in a van uh, and you come to the base of a bridge. And at the base of the bridge, there's a sign. And it says that there is a 100% certainty that this bridge is going to collapse if you continue over the bridge. Uh, so you're in a van with a bunch of loved ones and you look up this sign and then you look up at the driver and he turns to you and you can see uh, a name tag that says that he's a CEO executive of ExxonMobil. And so he turns to you after looking at the sign that says there's 100% certainty that this bridge is going to collapse if we go over it. And he says, yeah, don't worry about it, You know, we'll be okay. And he hits the gas and you start straddling your way towards this bridge. Um, you know. That is a real life scenario about the situation that we're in right now. If we were all in that van, I hope that we would make our way to the front, hit the brakes, veer left, right, whatever we have to do. Um, and if we can take these profits uh, and give dividend checks back and uh, address something like wealth income inequality, which is really a huge problem right now, it's actually the worst I believe that it's ever been. Um, and take money away from large corporations and put it back in the, the, the pockets of the people that need it most, uh, then great, you know, uh, more the power to us to, to band together uh, and develop a plan uh, that really uh, has the ability to put these people on notice. Um, and, you know, so what's gonna happen once we develop this plan is that uh, other states are gonna be put on to notice, put, put on notice and uh, they're gonna start asking themselves, you know, well, why can't we go to renewable energy? Why does Rhode Island get dividend checks back and we don't? Uh, we're often looked at as being the little brother to the rest of New England. And as soon as we hand them a bill, instead of handing them a check, uh, it's gonna disrupt the market and change everything. Uh, and they're gonna be forced, you know, into be going, going into renewables as well. So um, we really think that this has the ripple effect to make its way down the East Coast and then westward California. Uh, and, you know, we hope uh, that we can raise $26,000 uh, to get this uh, siting plan in Cranston. And then we can build it throughout the state and hopefully, again, be the birthplace to uh, the energy revolution. Nathan, thank you so much for being here with us. People can find out more and how they can help right at riprogressivedims.com, right? That's right. And any contribution is, is really greatly appreciated. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate this conversation. Thank you for having me. All right, that's it for the conversation this evening. Thank you for watching. Post game is next. Post game is next, right? Post game is next. Stay with us.